0: Merry Christmas everybody. How you doing? And a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. You're jumping into the last part of a conversation we've been having around here for the last month. A series of conversations called Unto Us. And in this series of conversations, we've been taking a look at the real Christmas story. And I think it's critical for us to look at the real Christmas story uh, because the Christmas story images that surround us are often so neat and so clean. It it can sort of feel like a a fairy tale. Maybe uh, you've seen something like, well, check out the screens, one of these driving down the road, the day glow nativity, the fluorescent nativity, right? And it's just sort of like, man, man, did this thing ever really happen? And the reality is that it did happen. And when it happened, it happened with real people living in real places, with real struggles. Uh, they woke up one day 2000 years ago assuming that that day would be like every other day but it wasn't. God moved in their direction and nothing would ever be the same. They had to figure out what they were going to do. They were real people just like you. And you're just like you're just like them. So the images don't help us, but I would argue that the songs we sing don't really help us either. I mean, we all love Silent Night, and don't worry, we'll be singing Silent Night at the end of the service together today. But um, I had a buddy years ago, we were talking about it, and he said, there's no way the first Christmas was a silent night. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, my wife has been through labor and delivery three times, and it was a lot of things, but it was not silent, right? And then that first night with the baby, he says, our kids just screamed the entire night. So there's, there's no way. I mean, it's romantic, but, but I don't think that's how it really went. I don't think it's how it really went down. And so in this series, that is absolutely awesome. (laughs) Whoever brought that kid, well done. All right, right, somebody pinched that kid, I betcha, right? Yeah, And, and so what we're doing is as we explore the characters in the Christmas story as real people, what we're finding around here is that we're finding a bit of ourselves in the Christmas story. And so with our time together on Christmas Eve, I wanna sort of finish up a conversation we've been having about the most famous couple in history Mary and Joseph. And I want to jump into their story on the evening of the first Christmas. And I want to sort of enter that nativity scene. But what I want to argue is that that nativity scene was nothing like the nativity scenes that we're used to. For one thing, there were only three people in it. You had Mary, you had Joseph, and you had baby Jesus. Moreover, they're not in a wooden structure because there's not a lot of wood in and around Bethlehem especially in the ancient world, uh, they would have been in a cave sort of like this one. Uh, this is a picture that I took a few years back when I was in Israel. And there are caves like this all over the area of Bethlehem. And that's where people would sort of keep their animals in the ancient world. And if you said to me, well, what does it feel like for them? So Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, they're in a cave. Evening is setting. What's, what's it like to be them? I would argue that Mary especially is, is beyond exhausted physically, mentally, and emotionally. Things have become increasingly difficult for her over the last nine months, uh, when uh, nine months prior to this night, an angel interrupted her life and invited her into an absolutely incredible adventure. She learned that she would be the one who would give birth to the rescuer, the one that God had promised to send his people to make things right. Moreover, that this baby would be so much more than a baby that God himself would be the baby's father, and this baby would change everything for everyone. And upon receiving this news, I mean, Mary, who's probably 14 years old at the time, erupts in song. And I love her enthusiasm at this idea of sort of being a part of what God is doing as another chapter of his story with regards to humans unfolds. Here's what Mary said, and Luke, uh, an early Jesus follower, records her words for us. Uh, Mary said this, she said... uh, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one, speaking of God, has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So like Mary busts out in song. She's so excited. She's joyful. She's hopeful. She feels loved. She feels blessed. But unfortunately, those emotions quickly eroded for her. Because when the angel left her, she sort of sat on the edge of the bed and had to wonder about the conversations that she was going to have to have, because everything's really clear when there's an angelic messenger talking to you. You might agree with that, right? But then the angel leaves, and she's thinking, okay, so um, I'm a virgin, and I'm going to have God's baby, and I have to tell Joseph. And I'm not sure this is going to go well, because, well, I don't know that anyone's ever had a conversation like this before. So there was what follows was the most awkward date night conversation in all of human history. It's kind of like, Joseph, you know, I love you. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. Yeah. And you know how we were talking about having kids right away? Yeah, yeah. W- what do you need to tell me, Mary? Well, I, I'm pregnant with God's baby. See, there's no way this conversation went well, right? When you think about it, there's no, and actually we know it didn't go well because another Jesus follower named Matthew in his account of Jesus' life tells us that after this conversation, Joseph decided to leave Mary. He's like, I'm out. I just, I can't do this. He he was going to leave until God sent him an angel as well. But that was Mary's difficult conversation number one. Difficult conversation number two comes when Mary has to tell her parents. And I just imagine, and all of you with daughters are like, yeah, what about that, right? And so I just imagine, you know, Mary and Joseph sort of having a strategy meeting and Joseph saying, you know, maybe you should just try this on your own. Because he's afraid of Mary's dad, Right. And so there's this conversation, and uh, Mary says to her parents, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm pregnant, and, and, you know, Joseph is going to be the dad, but Joseph's not the dad. God's sort of the dad, and, and we're still planning to get married. And I just imagine, like, Mary's father's face getting redder and redder and redder, and maybe there's some table pounding and some raising of voices. And then that moment where he sort of stands up, and she says, where are you going, Dad? And he says, well, i got to go have a come-to-Jesus meeting with Joseph. It's on, right? You, you, you got my daughter pregnant. I can't even believe this. And so that was difficult conversation number two. Then there were the months of stares that Mary had to endure as her belly grew. And as she walked the streets of Nazareth, archaeologists tell us probably three, 400 people lived in Nazareth in the first century, which means everyone knew everyone. And everyone knew everyone else's business and gossip flowed through the streets of Nazareth like a river. And I imagine Mary going to the market and hearing people talk, there she is. She's pregnant, she's not married. And there's this story about there might be some miraculous thing going on, but we all know that sort of thing doesn't really happen. I just imagine it was tough to be Mary during that stretch of time. But then then you know the the, the day of the birth is, is drawing near, and Mary's like, finally, you know, maybe we can start afresh, we can maybe have this baby and, and sort of move forward. And then there's a the day that Mary learns as the date of delivery approaches that there's been a Roman census called. Like Rome wants to know how many people they can tax, so everybody has to go to their ancestral hometown. And so Mary's attested Joseph. So they have to make a 70-mile walk <laughs> to Bethlehem. And I would argue, I mean, I've never been pregnant, ladies, but I mean, if you're pregnant, did any of you ever say, let's go walk 70 miles just for fun? I hear it might induce labor. No, nothing like that, right? So there's this long walk to Bethlehem. And I wonder, you know, what did they talk about on the way? And one of the conversations might be, where in the world are we going to stay? Bethlehem also was about three, 400 people. And so there weren't really inns as we like to think of them in ancient Bethlehem, but there were family homes in Bethlehem, including Joseph's ancestral family home, maybe Joseph's father, maybe Joseph's grandfather. So there was a day that Mary and Joseph walk up to Joseph's ancestral home and they knock on the door and they're greeted and there's another awkward conversation and it goes something like this, I'm sorry, but you are not having that baby with that woman in this house. She has ruined your reputation. She will not ruin ours. And so Mary and Joseph end up walking up a hill inside of Bethlehem to a cave where the Savior of the world would be born. Friends, that's the setup to the real nativity. And here's the problem with that nativity. Nobody would buy that and put it on their coffee table, right? Yeah, there would have been like three people in it, right? You have 14-year-old Mary who's sort of covered in birth. We'll leave it at that, right? And she's crying for her mom. You have baby Jesus screaming his head off because he's a newborn. And then you have Joseph, who's a guy and does what we guys do in these situations. Like, i got to figure this out. We're going to fix this. And I imagine Joseph thinking, I have no idea what to do. We are so off the script. I don't even know where to start. And then after this, Joseph maybe walks out and looks up into the heavens and, and has a little conversation with God and a bunch of questions that he asks God that all start with the word, Why? Why have you forgotten about us, God? Why have you abandoned us? We said yes to you. Why does life keep getting so hard? It doesn't make sense. Your son was born. We feel abandoned and lonely. I mean, God, no one but us knows that Jesus was born. Couldn't you at least tell somebody And at this moment, as I imagine it, uh, Joseph notices some silhouettes on the horizon and they're approaching and they're lit by moonlight because God has told someone that Jesus was born. It's just not the someone that anyone would have been expecting. Luke records for us the moment that this unlikely cast of characters learned the news. We'll pick it up in Luke 2 verse 8. It goes like this, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. This, by the way, is what shepherds always did in the ancient world. They hung out with sheep and they watched sheep all the time. Now, I don't know what picture comes into your mind when you think shepherds. Um, If I'm honest, before I did the study, I I always thought of Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Are you with me on this? Yeah, like long flowing beard, long flowing hair, staff with which to beat disobedient sheep. That, that was kind of the picture I had. But here's what's fascinating. When you look into the history, and even Middle Eastern culture today, you find that shepherds didn't look like this. Shepherds kind of looked like the kids from Stranger Things. You with me on that? Yeah, still lots of hair on their heads, but not so much the beard. That's how that went. Uh, shepherds in the ancient world were kids. Six to 12-year-old kids. Many of them would have been poor and orphaned and even homeless. So when you think of the shepherds in the Christmas story, just imagine like scared street kids and they're hanging out with sheep because somebody's hired them to watch their sheep and they're just trying to get enough food for the next meal. Well, they had no category for what was about to happen. It seemed to them a night like every other night, but it wasn't because angels were on the way. And without warning, they are surrounded by blinding light. Here's how Luke describes it. Um, he says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And I love this, because in the original language, in the Greek, it actually says, and a few of them had to change their undergarments. Just say it, right? <laughs> and I love that they're terrified. Because, and you say, well, why would they be terrified? Any time an angel showed up to anybody in the Bible, the people were terrified. And the angel always said the same thing right away. Like they're like, ta-da, here I am. And then they said this, check this out. Uh, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, which is really important if you're terrified. He said, I, you know, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. But question, and I highlighted a word there, who's the first you who gets the good news for all the people? Right. It's the shepherds. It's the shepherd kids. It's the poor, orphaned, hungry shepherd kids. And and nobody in the first century really cared about them. Yet God wanted them to be the first to know. Friends, that is nothing short of stunning. Why would God, who could have chosen anybody, choose the lowest, most marginalized, least influential group of humans to be the first to hear that Jesus was born? I think it's because God wants us to know that really the good news of what Jesus came to do is for everyone. He sent Jesus for everyone. And so he told the last people on earth anyone would expect. He told people who had nothing to offer him. They, had, they didn't have impressive resumes. They didn't have credentials. They didn't have connections. They didn't have any sort of a, a strength financially or militarily. They clearly couldn't do anything for him. And yet an angel comes to shepherds and, and tells them, of the good news of great joy. And as the angel continues to speak, the boys learn about what the good news is. Here's what the angel says. Today, in the town of David, which is another name for Bethlehem, a town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And I think at this sentence, the shepherd boys would have had their stomachs drop. Because, well, number one, an angel speaking to them. But, but number two, like, they knew exactly what the angel was talking about. Because see, hundreds of years earlier, God had promised to send a rescuer, a savior, a Messiah, a Christ. Someone who would come and, and make things right again. And life was hard for the children of Israel in the first century. And so finally God had sent someone to make things right. And, and, and the implication is that after years of waiting and years of silence, God has kept his promises. God cares about people. And God cares about us. As the angel continues to speak, uh, they learn something that's even even more shocking. The the angel gives them a clue about how the Savior came onto planet Earth. And here's, here's what Luke tells us. This will be a sign unto you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And again, we're so familiar with this because of Charlie Brown. Right? There you go. Yeah. But we, we miss the implications. Let me show you what a first century manger in Bethlehem would have looked like. Check out this picture. It wasn't made of wood. It wasn't particularly cute. They didn't, again, didn't have wood in Bethlehem. They had stone. And so this is what animals would eat out of. And so if, 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 if I'm a shepherd boy and an angel's talking to me and I get over that for just a moment and I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're telling me okay, the Savior of the world is born, good news, great joy, all people he was born, where? In a, in a manger? In a cave and eventually they would go to unwed teenage parents really like what a strange way to save the world it's the exact opposite of what anybody would expect and that's precisely the point as the account continues i love this somebody cues the choir check this out goes like this suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared so there wasn't just one angel now we had all kinds of angels praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And so there's this conversation with an angel. There's this angelic chorus that sings and then they all leave. And the shepherd boys look at each other and I just imagine the conversation like, what, so what do you guys want to do tonight? You know, sheep racing again? No? Okay. Yeah, no No one said that, right? What, what are they going to do? They're going to they're go and see. See, they're just outside Bethlehem, where shepherds were in the first century. Luke tells us this he says, "Um, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord told us about. Like, we got to see this. And then continues, "Um, So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. Just imagine this with me. So Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus are alone in this cave and it's the first Christmas and they feel like God has forgotten about them and they feel like God has abandoned them and they feel like they said yes and life got harder and, and Mary, Joseph has just said, God, can't you just tell somebody? And all of a sudden up walks more 14-year-old boys. Isn't, and they smell like sheep. Isn't that great? And, and he's like, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, well, you're not going to believe this. And Joseph's like, try me. I believe a lot lately, right? Well, there and th- this angel, and, and he said, and you're here. And I just imagine Joseph's having a conversation with the shepherds, and Mary just has tears streaming down her face. Because something new is happening. And they have a lot of questions, and a lot of confusion, and a lot of frustration, but God is on the move, and they have a front row seat. Continue. Um, So the shepherds go and they start telling everybody and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Everything the angel said, that's what they found. But I, I love that the shepherds go from like hanging out with sheep, homeless kids, not sure where they're going to get their next meal, not sure if they're going to get beaten by their employer. They still don't have parents. And all of a sudden, like the future is full of fear and uncertainty. And they meet the Savior. And all of a sudden, they're glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. Even as they walk back to a life that probably felt impossible. You see, the baby in the manger didn't alleviate their challenges or fix their problems. They still had the same problems that they had before they met Jesus. But the visit to Bethlehem did give them something they didn't have before. And it's a powerful something. I I believe that what the shepherds found in that manger in Bethlehem was hope. Hope that God is good. Hope that God keeps his promises. Hope that God hasn't forgotten about them, even though it often feels like he has. Hope that God values people that, like, nobody else values. Hope that God is telling a good story with their lives, even when it doesn't seem like it. Friends, hope is a powerful thing, and I would argue, in fact, not only is it a powerful thing, hope is the only thing that can move a person from fear to faith. Hope is the only thing that can move a person from fear to faith, and hope is front and center during the Christmas story. I would argue it was hope that kept Mary and Joseph moving forward when life fell apart for them. It was hope that gave them the courage to put one foot in front of the other as they walked to Bethlehem. Hope that God was still good and that God had always been good and that God was still at work even in their darkest moments. And that hope pushed out the very real fear of what their future would hold. That was Mary and Joseph. I would also argue that it was hope that transformed the perspective of the shepherd boys. Hope that despite their circumstances, God cared about them enough to let them be the first to welcome the Savior of the world. And if God cares about them enough to let them do that, then God cares about them. And I think that changed everything for the shepherd boys. And I think that same hope has the power to change everything for you and everything for me. Especially if you're here and 2018 has been a train wreck. And you didn't see it coming. And life fell apart. And you, like Joseph, find yourself taking a walk at night, looking at the scars, and just going, God, why? Why? Where are you? Don't you care? You can do anything. Why don't you do something? And if that's you and, and you're here, I am so honored that you're here. And please hear this God still cares about you. He still loves you. He still believes in you even if you don't believe in him. He is still telling a good story with your life. It's just a story with some really dark chapters and you happen to be in a dark chapter right here and right now. And my encouragement to you would just be the same thing that that the characters in the Christmas story did as they They just kept moving forward. They kept trusting. They said, okay, God, I don't understand where this goes from here, but I have just enough faith, just enough faith to keep moving forward. And eventually they found him to be faithful. And so this Christmas, my prayer for you is that the same hope that rose in the shepherd's hearts on that first Christmas night will rise in your heart as well. Because just like Jesus was born for them, Jesus was born for you. Heaven came here for you. And God always keeps his promises. It's good news of great joy for all people. Now, now I, I think all of that is absolutely fantastic, and but but there's something else I want to I want to point out. I think there's another reason that the shepherds were the first to see the birth of the Savior. And if you'll permit me, I, I need to nerd out a little bit for you, just, a, just like a minute of, of nerdness. So if you're here and you're a nerd, you're going to love this. And if not, just bear with me. We, we'll land soon. Okay. Um, but there's a fascinating connection between the birth of Jesus and something that happens later in Jesus' life. So here's the context part. Some sheep around Bethlehem were marked from birth for a special purpose. They were raised to be sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem, which was about five miles from Bethlehem. So if you said, you know, there's a temple in Jerusalem in the first century, yes. Uh, There was animal sacrifice happening all the time in the temple in Jerusalem, yes. Often the animal sacrifice involved sheep, yes. Where were those sheep born? Answer, Bethlehem. And these sacrificial sheep one day would have their blood spilled to pay for the sins of people. Now the Jewish law required that sacrificial lambs had to be perfect. And so when a pregnant mom lamb was ready to deliver a baby destined for the altar in the temple, they would put this pregnant lamb, or pregnant sheep rather, in a cave in Bethlehem to give birth. And after that baby lamb was born and washed and inspected, they would wrap him in, wait for it, swaddling clothes. Because that's why there are swaddling clothes in the cave outside of Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Then the lamb would be protected until the day came for him to be brought to the temple and sacrificed to pay for the sins of people. And I'm sure the shepherd boys would have wondered. They learn that the Savior of the world is born in a cave in Bethlehem in an animal food trough. And they're thinking, okay, that's where the lambs destined for sacrifice are born. That's a really strange place for the Savior of the world to be born. What kind of Savior, what kind of Messiah, what kind of Christ has God sent us? And and no one really knew until about 30 years later, when in one of the other accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, we hear something that a man named John the Baptist says about Jesus. So Jesus is around 30 years old and at the time there was a man named John the Baptist who went down to the Jordan River near the city of Jerusalem. Hundreds of people were coming to him to be baptized, to be immersed in water, to turn from their sins and return to God. Then one day Jesus comes along with the crowds and John the Baptist, this, this first century prophet, stops baptizing people, looks over, sees Jesus, points to him and says, check this out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And friends, this is stunning. It's like Jesus didn't just come to earth to affirm God's love for us. He came to demonstrate the depths of God's love for us. And at the end of his life, the one born in the same space as the sacrificial lambs would himself be sacrificed for the sins of all people and all times. Friends, 2,000 years ago, in a manger... In Bethlehem, heaven invaded our planet. And it happened in a way that no one was expecting. It happened in a world weary from sin, a world wondering if God still cared. And it happened in an instant when love broke the silence and the dawn of salvation came into view. The birth of Jesus really was good news of great joy for all the people. And friends, this is the message of Christmas. This is a message that changes everything. It's the message the angels proclaimed to the most unlikely of people that after generations of waiting and hoping and wondering and longing, here comes heaven. Here comes